This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. Owen Barter is Vice President, Director for Europe, and a Senior Fellow at the Center for Global Development, an organization that conducts research and analysis on a wide range of topics related to how policies and actions of the rich and powerful affect poor people in the developing world. From 1988 to 2010, Owen was a British civil servant. During that time, he worked at Number 10 Downing Street as the Private Secretary of Economic Affairs to the Prime Minister, in the UK Treasury, including as Private Secretary to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and in the Department for International Development, where he was variously Director of International Finance and Global Development Effectiveness, Director of Communications and Information, and Head of the Africa Policy and Economics Department. As a young Treasury economist, Owen set up the first UK government website to put details of the 1994 budget online. During 2004 to 2006, Owen worked at CGD, mainly on the advanced markets commitment for vaccines. Owen has also worked in the South African Treasury on budget strategy, at development initiatives where he helped establish the International Aid Transparency Initiative, and was a visiting scholar in economics at the University of California in Berkeley. Owen has lived in several countries in Africa, most recently in Ethiopia during 2008 to 2011. Owen has been an associate at the Institute for Government, a member of the advisory board of Wiza, the board of Publish What You Fund, and a member of the UK government International Development Sector Transparency Panel. Owen is also currently a visiting professor in practice at the London School of Economics. I spoke with Owen in London. Hello, Owen. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Where do I find you sitting today in the world? I'm sitting in central London, looking out of my window at the Houses of Parliament. Excellent. So I hope that uh, the weather has not turned too much yet here in October as we're recording this. Well, you know what London is like. It's always a little bit cloudy. (laughs) Owen, right now you're the vice president and director of CDG Europe um, and you're a senior fellow there. Tell us about that position. Tell us about what you do and what CDG does. So the Centre for Global Development is a think tank and we have a particular niche. We focus on how the policies and behaviours of rich countries and powerful institutions like the World Bank and the UN and the WTO affect poor people and poor countries. So we think about policy, we think about behaviour, but primarily of our own governments and the systems that we're in control of, rather than thinking about how developing countries themselves should manage their resources and uh, and their trajectory on development. So we think closely, obviously, about the development process in the developing world, but we mainly think about how we can affect our end of it. How does that play out in reality? Like, can you give us a specific example of a, of a project or two that you're working on? We call ourselves a think-and-do tank. So we are very much not the kind of organization that produces uh, reports to sit on a shelf. We see ourselves as very evidence-led. We We do analysis, we we use a lot of data, we do a lot of stats, but we then turn those into policy ideas and we will then work with policymakers, mainly in governments and international organisations, to work with them to see these things implemented. So, for example, I had a meeting just today with a senior official from the British government thinking about um, what would need to happen to make insurance markets work better so that developing countries could insure themselves against risks like earthquakes and floods. And when you're in that meeting, are you bringing evidence, as you said, you're bringing research? Tell me what the life cycle looks like of bringing an issue to the table and then following it through to a point where you either claim success or you say, you know, it's time to move on. So sometimes these things can be quite uh, short and opportunistic, but more often 
for us. We invest quite a bit in really understanding uh, an issue. Um, one of my colleagues would establish themselves as an expert, um, undertake uh, rigorous research, build a network, and then turn that into um, some policy ideas. So they might well start out without knowing exactly what the policy idea or ideas are going to be. Uh, and then the idea is to, as their research deepens, for them to begin to work with policymakers to, to turn that analysis into policy proposals. So that can take uh, several years. And then it might take a year or more to really refine and develop a proposal in, into a form that can be implemented by governments and policymakers. So these are quite long-term uh, projects. People listening to this podcast right now are salivating because one of the first things they're going to ask is, how do you get someone to fund you for long-term thinking and long-term work? What, what does that look like? Where does your funding come from? And, and how do you convince whom, you know, whatever your funding source is that, you know, hey, it's okay, we're going to come up with ideas and it's going to work over the long term? So our funding is a, a combination of foundations. That's about half our funding. About a quarter of our funding is from governments. And about a quarter comes from partners uh, in the commercial sector, companies, corporate social responsibility grants, for example, and some individual donations. To be honest, it isn't easy to raise the kind of money that we need to do this long-term work. We achieve this partly by staying small. Um, we, would we would rather be small and very effective and be the size we can be given the amount of funding that's available for this kind of work rather than grow and become dependent on contract work or, or work to other people's agendas. So we stay relatively small. Um, we build good long-term relationships with our donors. We have a track record of success, which uh, inspires some confidence from people who fund us. And there are some good donors out there, and we should acknowledge that. A couple of questions come from that. First, we like stories here. What's your favorite success story um, of CDG today? So I think one success story uh, has been our work on something called an advanced market commitment, uh, which was an idea to create incentives that would... Uh, enable vaccines to be produced for diseases that affect people in developing countries. The underlying problem is that people who suffer from, for example, malaria, um, are too poor to buy a vaccine at the kind of price that a pharmaceutical company would need to charge to recover their R&D costs. It costs about a billion dollars to develop a new vaccine or a new drug. And the way that pharmaceutical companies get that money back is by charging a higher price. That works for diseases uh, that affect rich people, people in, in OECD countries, but it doesn't work well for people in developing countries. So we put together an idea to persuade a group of donors, in this case it, it turned out to be six large donors, to promise that if somebody was to develop a new vaccine, in this case it was for pneumococcal disease, which kills about a million kids a year in the developing world, if somebody could produce a vaccine uh, suitable for use in the developing world, that they would buy one and a half billion dollars worth of that vaccine. And what that did is it created market incentives. Four pharmaceutical companies signed up for that. Uh, two of them actually ended up producing a vaccine that 
fit the specification that the donors set out. Uh, that was a vaccine that hadn't existed before. It's now being used in around 57 different countries. It's saved by now about one and a half million lives, and by 2030 it will save around seven million lives. Because this group of donors made this promise, not just a political pledge, but a legally binding contract, that should somebody develop a suitable vaccine, they would buy it. That harnessed the innovation and the resources and the investment of industry behind this developing country problem in a way that the normal market mechanism wouldn't have done. We're proud of that, obviously. We're, we're proud of not only of having helped develop the idea and indeed coined the term advanced market commitment, which is now a widely used and understood term, but also in actually helping the design and delivery of the idea so that it's actually been implemented and is having this effect. That's a fantastic story. Could I ask you the the opposite of that or the, the other side of the coin? Has there been an initiative that you've put on the table or a a piece of advocacy that you've been putting out there that essentially fizzled and, and you know, you've, you've tied the knot on it and said, you know what, we're not going to pursue this anymore and, and why that? So we like to think of these as solutions that haven't been successful yet. Um, there are some that we've stopped working on, which are, I still think are, are good ideas, but we haven't yet managed to persuade people of. One that I have worked on is the idea of preemptive contract sanctions which is an idea that where a government doesn't have legitimacy, perhaps it's come to power in a coup or perhaps it's lost an election and refused to leave office, that the contracts that that government enters into shouldn't be enforceable in international courts. And the effect of that would be to raise the cost of doing business with that regime. It would make it harder for them, for example, to sell national assets that to finance their um, continued existence. And it would also mean that in years to come, when that government is replaced by a legitimate regime, that the new legitimate government doesn't face the prospect of, of inheriting debts from its illegitimate predecessor. That it then has to either renege on, which is a costly business, or it has to service them, which is also a costly business. So this idea, I, I worked in South Africa when Mandela became president. And a big dilemma for the Mandela government was whether they should pay the debts incurred by their apartheid-era predecessors. And I was working in the South African Treasury at the time. And one of the questions we had to think about was, should we repay debts incurred by the apartheid government, some of which were used to buy military equipment, used to suppress the very people that were now sitting in ministerial offices? Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. And so to prevent that kind of thing from happening, wouldn't it have been better if we had said that debts entered into by the apartheid government were simply not enforceable? They, were not, they didn't have legal standing internationally because the government wasn't a proper representative of, of its people. And it seems to me that, that we could both help to build up pressure against illegitimate regimes and we could help foresee and anticipate the problem of future successful legitimate governments just by announcing now that we are not going to recognise the contracts that those governments, those regimes enter into. Mm. That idea seems to me almost a no-brainer. And I'm. Uh, and that's what I was just going to say. It seems like a no-brainer. So what's the resistance? Why is it on the shelf? Well, a there are a variety of problems. Um, one is that um, 
there's a coordination problem that, um, for example, the UK wouldn't want to see uh, us um, say that our courts won't uphold these contracts only to find that the commercial court business uh, moves to New York or some other regime. Um, it's partly a worry about the general legal principles involved in declaring regime to be illegitimate and what broader consequences that might have. It's partly a feeling that it probably wouldn't tip the balance uh, in terms of the continued existence of illegitimate regimes, that they would still find a way to, uh, to survive and prosper. And so we'd be making some effort that uh, perhaps wouldn't make a lot of difference to their longevity. And I think it partly, you know, I think we like to have some discretion about how we um, work on debt relief after legitimate government comes to power in these countries. We like to exercise some patronage and power rather than simply automatically write, you know, have these debts um, mm. not valid. So there are a bunch of reasons why people hesitate about it. This is true of a lot of the, the things we work on. It, uh, my sense is that people think it would be a good idea if this kind of tool was in place, but they are not convinced that it's worth going through the effort and some cost of figuring out exactly how to do it and how to iron out all the wrinkles to get there. It doesn't, at this point, do enough to solve a problem that they have uh, that makes them want to undergo those costs of, of doing something novel. And there are some risks to politicians and public servants of doing new things that, you know, they need a reason to undertake. That's a great lead into the next question I was I wanted to put on the table was, what's your competition like? I mean, you're in the business of ideas, you're in the business of, of advocacy and, and policymaking. How do you compete with your other tanks, think tanks or other organizations or even you know, just the general bureaucratic machinery of coming up with policy that makes sense or um, you know, making sure that your agenda is heard. Is there a particular mechanism that you use or is it boots on the street and, you know, and the phone calls as often as you can? So this is going to sound insincere, but it isn't. We genuinely don't see other people in our space as our competitors. We see them as our collaborators. Um, so other think tanks, academics, NGOs, people working in governments and international institutions are all part of a shared community, in our view, working together to try to find solutions to some of these problems. Um, so for us, the challenge is not about how we grow our market share, but how we grow the market. Uh, we want to see many ideas of this kind. We want to see many ideas succeed. And uh, frankly, we're equally happy if a great idea from another organization uh, succeeds as we are if one of our own succeeds. There, I mean, to some extent, we're competing for attention um, from policymakers and organizations and the media and so on. But, you know, in the end, it's, it's not our objective to get any bigger. It's our objective to see the world be a better place. And, and mm -hmm. the, the more people working on that, the better. I want to turn for a second to, to the story of how you ended up, you know, sort of sitting in the vice president chair where you're sitting right now. Can you take us back, you know, to sort of your youth and you're saying, you're saying to yourself, I know where I want to go with my career. I know that you've done a lot of treasury economic work, um, but did you always know that, that, that this is where you wanted to end up or has this been a circuitous route? I don't know if it's been circuitous, but I've, I've certainly, it's never been a planned trajectory. I 
um, ended up working in the Treasury quite by accident. I was looking for a, a job to pay the bills after I left university, and they advertised for temporary economists. And I think um, we need to coin that phrase immediately, temporary economists. Temporary That's economists, awesome. exactly. I applied and found myself working at the Treasury and stayed there for quite some time, um, much against my... I never planned to do that. And uh, I ended up going to South Africa because we had a visiting delegation from the South African Parliament and South African government just after Mandela became president who came to the UK to understand better how the government managed public expenditure, how it allocated resources, because they had a particular challenge of trying to think about how to uh, allocate more resources to the poorest people in South Africa and away from security services towards social services. And they were looking for advice on that. And I happened to be the person whose job was to organise a series of seminars for them. Um, and at the end of a week uh, in their company, at the leaving drinks, they said, would I like to come down to South Africa with them and help them set up the South African Treasury? And you said, and sure, I said, that sounds like a great idea. I did, I did. And, and two months later, I was living in Pretoria. You've got to take your opportunities when they come. You know, that's just as an aside, that one of the things I love about speaking with professionals such as yourself is these moments happen for so many of us where you know, the opportunities put on the table. And it's like, here's your moment. You've been waiting for it. Will you make the jump or not? And so that was sort of your moment. Exactly right. Exactly right. And uh, I was very fortunate, uh, right place at the right time. And what that did was, for me, reignite an interest I had in international development. And it was an interest I had had since I'd been a teenager when um, I had lived in Ethiopia. I'd been in Ethiopia during the famine, the famous famine of the early 1980s, because of my father's job. And I had um, been fortunate enough um, to visit some of the refugee camps in Ethiopia to see for myself what it meant for a country to be not only in drought, but in famine, uh, and how the international community responded to that. I think that had always left me with the sense that of all the public policy questions, of all the challenges for the world, thinking about the problem of absolute poverty and hunger was the most important and remains the most important challenge in the world. So being back in Africa, living in South Africa, working, you know, South Africa's um, different from many other developing countries, but it faces many of the same challenges, made me realise that, um, you know, having been an apprentice in the Treasury as a, as a public servant, as an economist, that uh, that was actually where I wanted to apply my skills and my experience. And uh, when I returned from South Africa, I then didn't work on development. I was offered and took a job working in Number 10 Downing Street for the Prime Minister, for Tony Blair. So I went to Number 10. I was his economics private secretary uh, for a couple of years. Um, but when I left number 10, I had a certain amount of freedom about what I wanted to do next. And I joined the UK's Department for International Development so that I could work again on development issues. And why didn't you stay with DFID? Did you, um, you sort of had a taste of it and thought, this is too bureaucratic or, or this isn't going to allow me to be as effective as I want to be? Or were there other decisions behind that to actually, as I see, return to CDG? You actually had worked at CDG before and then returned there. Right. So I, DFID is a fantastic organization and I 
was proud and would be proud to work for them. There's no... Every organization, uh, I'm sure, has uh, its frustrations. And, of course, of course. Uh, yeah. But DFID is a, a terrific organization. And uh, so it, there was certainly no question of not wanting to work for them for that reason. Uh, my partner and I have a deal. We alternate which of us takes us somewhere. And she had taken us to California. Um, so I left DFID and went with her to California uh, to live in Berkeley, and what, had the, the great fortune, actually, of being able to work for the Center for Global Development while I was living in Berkeley, while she was taking us there. When we returned to London, I, it, when, I, when it was my turn, I took us back to London and worked at DFID. And then it was her turn again, and she took us to Ethiopia, uh, which was terrific. Um, uh, she had a job there working on sexual and reproductive health, running a, a chain of clinics, so I left DFID again and was doing some other work while I was based in Ethiopia. And I decided then um, uh, not to go back to DFID yet again, partly because I felt that I wanted to work on a broader development agenda, which DFID works on in part, but uh, I wanted to see um, extended and that broader development agenda is is to think not only about how aid is spent and how it's how it's used, uh, and if it is you know uh, is a very fine uh, and effective aid agency, but I also thought it's important to work on um, issues of trade policy, of intellectual property rights. Just been talking about sanctions policy, you know R and D, uh, intellectual property for uh, you know investments in pharmaceuticals technology transfer, migration policies, uh, peace and security policies, a whole range of policies that affect developing countries, which I felt needed more attention than the domestic policy agenda here in the UK was was giving them. Mm. Uh, and so um, uh, I thought it was uh, a good next step for me to uh, start working on those issues independently, obviously often working closely with colleagues in DFID, but also with many other organizations, to keep that, to keep those ideas, find ways to generate those kinds of ideas. This may seem like a non sequitur, but you mentioned it specifically, and I wanted to touch on it, was how did you and your partner make that decision to trade off? And, and you know, as I'll put my experience on the table as well, that's exactly what my wife and I did when we decided to get married. This is now almost 10 years ago, you know, we made the very conscious decision to say, you know, we're going to be always living in the same country. We're, we're never going to be those development workers that live apart, et cetera. This is a big issue in the development and humanitarian aid issue, humanitarian aid profession, at least. How did you guys make that conscious decision? Or was it just a, uh, you know, that was just an agreement from the very beginning? It was an explicit decision, but I'm not sure. I can't quite imagine what an alternative decision would have looked like, um, to be honest. Well, for many, for many people, they say, you know, each of them will go where the opportunity is and we're going to just agree to live apart for periods. And, you know, I've got colleagues who commute back and forth, you know, on a weekly basis and it can be tough on a, on a relationship. Right. I mean, I, you know, I'm full of admiration for people who, uh, who do that and make that work. Um, I think we knew that it would be better for, you know, if you're in a relationship, you want to be with somebody, right? That felt like a... Uh, natural choice for us to make. I mean, I don't want to sound as if either of us is making any great sacrifice. It's no. it's actually very exciting to 
find out where you're going next and think about what you might do uh, in that place um, or with that opportunity. And it's nice to be pushed a bit out of your comfort zone and not to be grinding your way up some career escalator in the same organization year after year. I see it as a as a huge opportunity. It's never been something that we where we really considered seriously any alternative ways of being. And, you know, in, in real life, you we talk about where we want to go. It's not entirely springing a surprise on each other. But I think we're, we're clear that we want to continue to move together and that we both have careers that we can both pursue. And so far, it hasn't done either of us any harm, this kind of, this kind of arrangement. So I want to sort of reel us all the way back to where we started. You know, you said it, at CDG, it's about identifying issues that are important, developing the expertise, becoming that known expert, and then formulating policy decisions or, or policy recommendations out of that expertise. Is any of that funder-driven? How do those issues ultimately end up getting bubbled up? You said you're a small group. Is there a consensus-driven process for that? Or how do you ultimately end up IDing those issues? So actually, far from being a consensus-driven group, we're, a, we're more a diversity-driven group. We often don't agree about things. We, we as an organization, do not take institutional positions. You so know, really, you're, have... a, you're a holding tank for a lot of great minds, and really, it's sort of carte blanche. Yes, that's right. I mean, we, we have a sense of, of, a, of a shared mission, and we also have a sense and an expectation of shared standards of quality of research and analysis and that we uphold. But we don't expect everybody to agree with each other. We're more than a holding tank in the sense, you know, we we, we learn a lot from each other. We interact with each other. Um, one of the great advantages of being relatively small is that we um, we know each other as uh, as friends. We you know, we have lunch together, and um, we learn a lot from each other. But we we are absolutely not funder driven. We identify research agendas that we want to work on and then we have a small but very hard-working team that goes out and finds funders who are willing to support our work. We absolutely are not in the business of letting funders determine our priorities and to be fair to them none of the funders who we work with would want to shape our priority. They can always find people who want to work on the things they want to fund. Uh, so we, we look for something where there's a, a, a mutual interest and we learn a lot, I have to say, from our funders. They, um, you know, the, the people who we work with are often uh, experts in their field, often un understand the issues well, often have perspectives about what kind of work is going to have a big impact, and we learn from that. But we're absolutely not in the business of, you know, the the idea, the original motivation is something that, that we start off with and then we look for funding for it. Hmm. It's an ideal world. It sounds fantastic. Are there individuals or issues yourself that you're looking on, looking at that you think are going to be important in the next two, three, five years? Like what sort of what's what's the near term future look like for the work that you're working on? I mean, this isn't just me. I think there's a range of issues where the international development community is looking for some answers. One is on figuring out a, a better set of mechanisms for working in partnership with the private sector, especially with private investment. Uh, there's a big move internationally, as I'm sure you know, towards thinking of how we can increase private investment in developing countries. This is something that uh, you know, African finance ministers and prime ministers and presidents would like to see. Uh, it's something that 
we in richer countries would like to see, but we have to think about what the right instruments are to make that a, a successful partnership for private sector partners for developing countries and for governments in donor countries. And there's a whole set of questions about what the right objectives of that are, what the right instruments are, what the right way of, uh, of developing that is. Another big issue that um, I think is, is obviously rising up the agenda fast is the role of migration in development policy. You know, migration of people is probably the single most effective instrument for lifting people out of poverty. And yet a lot of our policies are largely oriented towards preventing it rather than encouraging it. And um, there are lots of interesting opportunities for how we can create win-win situations for people from developing countries and for richer countries by having by improving our migration policies. There's a, a set of questions in the near term about how we improve the humanitarian aid system. There's a huge funding shortfall in humanitarian aid and growing with a very large number of people displaced by conflict, particularly at the moment in um, from Syria, obviously, but but very large numbers of people in long-term refugee camps around the world and an international system that really isn't in many ways not serving their needs well enough, as well as not being well enough resourced. And there are all kinds of interesting uh, mechanisms for making that system work better, one of which I've been working on recently, which is giving people cash. So instead of having people in refugee camps and giving them food off the back of a truck, why not give them a, a smart card or a, a smart a smartphone and transfer cash to them that they can spend. Uh, and then, and then they would just go into the market and, and buy the food or the shelter or the um, whatever it is they need. And there's lots of evidence that that's a, a much more effective. As you uh, say, we're not to go down that rabbit hole too far, but right. where has that been implemented thus far? Well, in many different uh, scenarios, something quite surprising. It was about a decade ago. It was implemented in Somalia, um, which you might not think was the most propitious circumstance uh, for a mechanism like that. Uh, the NGOs and donors um, observed that all the um, people were hungry. Uh, there was a drought. Uh, all the shops were boarded up. They concluded that there was nothing to buy in the market, so they started bringing in food. A local group of NGOs persuaded them to start giving people cash, I mean, literally cash in that case, and almost overnight the shops reopened, the uh, middlemen started trucking the food in and selling it to people, uh, the market started to flourish, people earned livelihoods as, uh, as producers and distributors and retailers of food. Uh, and other goods and services that people needed, and the economy got back on its feet. And it, it turns out to be a lot cheaper to do that than um, to provide goods and services in kind. That was Somalia 10 years ago. We're seeing it right now in, in the south of Ethiopia, a place called Jijiga. There's three big Somali refugee camps. The UN has, has run a trial where they've um, given some people um, aid in kind and some people cash. Turns out you get better results for less money by giving people cash and the markets do in fact respond pretty well and we're seeing it right now in Lebanon um, large numbers of Syrian refugees many of them living in urban areas or around urban areas and it's highly effective to give people cash in those circumstances so they can buy what they need. Hmm. Uh, it sounds counterintuitive I know but it, it I, turns I, out to work really well. well yeah I'm, for me it, it actually sounds 
not counterintuitive. It seems like common sense to me, unfortunately. <laughs> but I, I can see all of the policy issues behind it. You know, if, if I were the Lebanese government or I were the, you know, the, the Jordanian government, why that may pose problems. But that's, I think that that, you know, that's a good segue. I wanted to ask a couple more questions, but one of them was, this sounds like a, a topic that you would have on your podcast, Development Drums, right? What was your favorite or has been your favorite episode on that podcast? Thank you. That's a great question. I enjoyed doing them all. Um, if listeners to your podcast want to try one, perhaps try the episode about corruption with Danny Kaufman and Mushtaq Khan. I enjoyed it because they are both experts right at the top of their game with different views on corruption. And I enjoyed listening to them debate the issues. Um, so I think that would be one that I would point to. The other, because I, I'm interested at the moment in migration, uh, was my discussion with Michael Clemens, who happens to be one of my colleagues at the Centre for Global Development, talking about his approach to research and policy on migration and development, I think is a good listen. Mm, fantastic. You know, before I ask my last two questions, what, what was your inspiration for putting that podcast together? So I'm a bit of a geek, and we uh, were moving to Ethiopia, and I was wondering um, what combination of things I might do while we were living there. And it occurred to me that one of the great advantages of the internet is that you can, if you choose, super serve a niche audience. In other words, because we're not competing for airtime, you can, people then have to produce programs or products that everybody in the mainstream is going to be interested in. You can instead dig deep into an issue and recognize that only a small minority of people are going to be interested in it, but they're going to be very interested in it. And so you can really uh, explore the ins and outs of that and you put it up as a podcast. And if, if that's too long and boring for non-expert or you know mainstream audiences that's fine they don't have to download it they don't have to listen to it so i was interested in that idea of 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 the long tail the title of a famous book of, of serving the long tail with something interesting and i felt that mainstream media doesn't and probably can't do that because it's you know it's too small a group of people who'd be interested so i decided that i would try it with development drums and i've been surprised by uh, how many people are out there in the long tail? It has a pretty good audience, and I've enjoyed doing it. It's been more fun than I expected. I've made myself a promise never to let it become a stress. I don't have a timetable for producing them. I don't have any obligations to anybody to produce them. So I do them uh, even when I have time and even when I feel like it. So they're always fun. They're always a hobby for me. I've been very gratified by how many people have said how much they enjoy them. Many people that I know who work for our organization and, in other words, have listened to your podcast and have enjoyed it immensely. We hope that you continue to produce them. Two more questions for you. One is, what's your go-to story about either your, you know, your time in Africa or some other, you know, quote-unquote development or aid story that you would tell a friend or a new acquaintance, you know, you're having a beer with them somewhere, and they're like, you know, oh, what is it that you do? Can you, can you tell me about that? Many of us have that go-to story about a funny time, you know, you were trapped somewhere or a flight didn't happen or, you know, you were out in the outback or something. Do you have one of those? I actually don't think I do have a, a go-to story. I've, <laughs> I've been fortunate enough to have <laughs> a, you know, a career doing many different things. And I don't really have a kind of typical experience that really illustrates 
everything we do. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm no, a good answer for that. No problem, no problem. So many people, you know, especially people who spend most of their time in the field helping others, there's always some story about, you know, it was night and we were trapped under the banyan tree and, you know, <laughs> here's how it happened. But no worries. The last question I have is one that I ask everyone here on the Terms of Reference podcast. You know, the focus of our show up to this point has been how you create a career that's both sustainable and satisfying. That's one of the, the two big issues for many of, many of us in this profession. And I'm wondering, what are your one or two pieces of critical advice for achieving that? That's a great question. I think I'm in a generation that's been fortunate. My sense is that for young people now coming out of university, out of grad school, it's uh, the labor market is very hard. I'm sitting in central London where prices are very high. I think it's, I feel as if my own experience has been very lucky actually, that, that I didn't have to face such a difficult labour market, such a hard environment. I do think it's important in development to spend some time, perhaps quite a bit of time, living in a developing country. And I, I know that's not always possible for everybody, and you know, I recognise that. But to the extent that it is possible, especially perhaps for younger people who don't have family or, or big financial commitments yet... I think that is something you should do when you can. I think that provides you with both a reservoir of knowledge and understanding and perspective, but also a continuing passion for the work we do. And you know, there are times when you need to dig into that reservoir of, of commitment and passion when you're grinding away at some um, research in some, you know, or putting together a, a, an invitation list for an event or... You know, there are all kinds of circumstances where you need to be reminded why you're doing this. And I do think that the international development community depends a lot and to some extent rather takes advantage of the very high levels of commitment and passion for the people who work in it. Now, we're not the only industry that does that. I think, you know, healthcare does that. I think journalism does that. I think politics does that to some extent. But, uh, you know, we're very fortunate to work in, a, in an industry on, on a topic that, most of us think is fundamentally important. And I feel privileged every day to be working on development. Somehow you need to manage not to let that unbalance you so much that you forget to take care of yourself and of your family and your, your loved ones. Because it's easy to think that because this is so important that, that it must drive your every waking moment. That's certainly a praiseworthy instinct. But I hope that people find a way to balance that passion with also recognizing the importance of spending time with their loved ones. Owen, thank you so very much for taking the time to be on our podcast today. Thanks very much, Stephen. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Yay!